Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we will inquire into the nature of habit and freedom, the meaning of life, and how we can do our jobs and live together while feeling good in our mind, heart, and body and feeling good about ourselves, about how we are living and loving. In order to get at such big philosophical issues, we'll begin with a little exercise of philosophical imagination. Imagine that an international group of scientists from various fields have convened a major press conference. We find out that a team of archaeologists, astrophysicists, quantum physicists, psychologists, ecologists, biologists, and many others have been working closely together because of a remarkable finding, a discovery so surprising that all of these experts joined forces to verify an astonishing hypothesis. They found an artifact. And after a series of surprising discoveries about it, they began to probe it with increasing fascination. It seemed to give off a mysterious energy. And after a tremendous amount of work, everyone had agreed that whatever this thing might be exactly, it gave clear evidence of having the capacity to destroy the planet. However, it also gave exceedingly optimistic evidence that it could save the planet, meaning that this artifact seemed to have the capacity, and the scientists could barely stand the strangeness of saying this, but this artifact seemed capable of doing the following. It could stop the mass extinction of species. It could stop the general collapse of the conditions of life. It could end war, poverty, and consumerism. It could end racism and all forms of discrimination. It could put an end to unemployment and also put an end to all of the most stupid jobs that exist in our present culture. In general, this artifact seemed to have the capacity to lead us to a period of relative peace, compassion, wisdom, and well-being as well as a flowering of creativity and intelligence, perhaps even a revolution in science and the arts. The scientists felt practically embarrassed by these claims, and this in part explained why so many experts had been brought into this project, each to verify these claims as far as possible. After saying all of this and getting everyone in the room worked into a frenzy, the scientists presented an unfortunate caveat. They could not, for the life of them, figure out how to use this mysterious artifact. They got so desperate they even tried yelling at it. They tried shocking it with various kinds of energy. They tried pushing on it in various places. They analyzed its composition in countless ways. They put it into every scanner they had. They could get it to do a variety of things, some of them quite intriguing, but they had become convinced 
that if they only knew how to use it properly, it would mark a joyful and even sacred turning point on our planet. On the other hand, they had to admit that continuing to do things as they had so far been doing them might trigger the destructive side of the artifact, marking a catastrophic turning point on our planet. Of course, they also admitted that doing nothing, we'd still face all the problems the artifacts seem to have the capacity to help us avoid or at least mitigate. You might have figured out that in this allegory, the artifact in question is the human being, the human heart, mind, body, and soul. The story creates a few problems in the sense that it deals with an object and not an ecology or a living system of relations interwoven with nature. However, it serves to frame a core issue. How do we use our own mind, heart, body, and world? This is not an easy question to answer in a podcast format because, like all of the most important things in philosophy or love wisdom, it requires experience. So our contemplation may feel a little unconventional. But if you bear with it, you might find yourself considering some interesting possibilities. Now, this is the first of several contemplations that will inquire into the nature of habit and freedom and how those, in turn, relate to the meaning of life and the problems we face personally and globally. And here we are putting the essence of these matters into the form of an initially strange question. How do we use ourselves in a skillful way? What is the proper way of using our own mind, heart, body, and world? If the world seems to be a bit of a mess, and if we struggle with feeling badly about ourselves as well as just not feeling so great physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, then maybe we aren't using ourselves properly. If there's any gap between our ideals and what we're actually getting in our lives, maybe that gap is due to this problem of how we use ourselves. Another way to put this suggestion is that a better way of using ourselves might see our current way of living, learning, creating, thinking, and knowing the way we might see someone hitting their touchscreen with a hammer. If we saw someone hitting a touchscreen with a hammer while seeming to try to use it properly, we might reasonably conclude that they didn't really know how to use a touchscreen. We may think we know how to use things like touchscreens, cars, phones, laptops, and all sorts of other devices. But the history of philosophy, science, and politics, together with the present state of our planet, suggests that we don't know how to use whatever it is that uses the car, the phone, the laptop, the river, the rainforest, the mountain, the meadow. Perhaps despairingly, the problem presents a lot of subtle challenges, including ethical and aesthetic ones. 
It's just not easy to get at this issue, despite the fact that it affects literally everything. Let's take a simple example. When we were kids, our parents and teachers told us to pay attention. But we were never taught how to pay attention. The nuts and bolts of it, how do we skillfully tap into our mind's capacity to attend? How do we skillfully and gracefully use our own mind? I hear parents tell their children to be still, to pay attention, to let go of some obsession or other. And all the while, those same parents can't get through the week without Ativan, Xanax, Prozac, alcohol, and they have all kinds of obsessions and neuroses they cannot let go of. It just comes in an adult package, and they miss the incoherence of their reaction to their own children, and for that matter, their reaction to other people and other people's children. This notion of how we use ourselves might seem subtle or even silly, but if we look carefully, if we contemplate carefully, we might begin to see that here we have our finger on perhaps the single greatest obstacle to personal and cultural maturity. If we want to understand why the world is in such a bad state, this is a really helpful way to look at the problem. Part of what makes it so helpful is that it is so intimate. It goes deep into our psyche. So we have to maybe get at it indirectly at first. So let's imagine another experiment. Imagine that we were to put our dominant arm in a sling and decide that we couldn't use it for a day or two. Now, if we did that, we might realize how much our handedness organizes a great deal of our activity. Now, actually doing this, putting our dominant arm in a sling, might make things quite salient. But even without doing so, if we just pay attention to how we move in the world for a day or two, or just imagine it in your own mind, you might begin to notice or sense how you always approach a door in just the right way to land your preferred hand on the handle, or how you stand at the stove in order to use a skillet, or how you organize your body to pick up something heavy, and on and on. Our handedness is like an objective condition of our activity. It's like a, an organizing principle. But so is the basic way we use our mind, heart, body, and world. And our handedness doesn't go as deep as that more basic use. To be very clear, we're not really talking about objective conditions in the usual sense of objectivity, because we're talking about something that transcends the duality between objective and subjective. Nevertheless, what we're talking about functions in an objective way, if the term objective can have any useful meaning. Now imagine I told you that you could be far more successful in your life if you would realize you've been using the wrong hand. 
Imagine I told you that I have observed you carefully and I can see that you are actually succeeding in spite of yourself. Because in fact, you are naturally organized to use the other hand as the dominant one. And so everything you do is just a little harder and it comes with a feeling of subtle, deep, and significantly unconscious dissatisfaction because the other hand wants to take the lead. Now that's kind of what we're talking about, but again, it's deeper than handedness. It's something intimate and subtle and quite profound because it's the whole of what we do, how we appear in the world, how we think and create. It's also where all our problems come from. That's why it's a focus in wisdom-based coaching and in all serious philosophical or spiritual traditions. Let's consider another example. If someone tells you that you have bad posture, what can you do to fix it? Well, you could attempt to stand up straight. But that only amounts to another bad idea. Why? Because anything you try to do to correct your posture comes from the context of years of habit. You have spent years practicing your slouch, practicing posture as you know it, posture as you sit, stand, walk. It may not seem like practice, but that's what it is. And now you're so good at it, so good at holding your body the way you do, that your habits have an energy and even a kind of life of their own. Ponder that for a moment. Your habits, all the ways you have practiced knowing who you are, what the world is, how to use your mind, your heart, your body, and world, all of that is the context for any possible change. But we usually don't have any awareness of these basic habits of using ourselves. We might be able to talk about some of what we do, but there's a layer beneath all that we say, and we have to get at that if we want to fulfill our highest potential. After all, we are the basic tool we use to do everything. Whether we're negotiating a deal, pursuing a new career or a new career goal, dating, raising a family, performing surgery, driving a car, cooking dinner, we are the most basic tool. The surgeon's scalpel or the seamstress's needle does not become a tool until the surgeon and the seamstress can use their own heart, mind, body, and world in a sufficiently skillful way. And each of us can become much more than we are as we learn to use ourselves better, which is the key to everything we do. That's why all the wisdom traditions focus on creating a revolution in how we use ourselves. And it's why wisdom-based coaching, in turn, focuses on facilitating that revolution. For anything we want to change, for any bad result we want to stop getting, or any better result 
we want to bring to fruition, we have to see that a set of conditions makes all results possible. In the case of an unwanted result, that unwanted result will continue until the objective conditions change. We can no more dismiss those conditions by an act of will than we could put out a fire by ordering it to go out. The fire can be put out only by changing conditions, and it's the same with changing our posture or changing the level of pollution in a river, changing the level of violence in a society, ending wars, ending poverty, ending stupid jobs, achieving seemingly impossible things, and fulfilling the real meaning of our lives so that we can feel good about ourselves and help the world. The fires of the world won't stop burning until we address the fundamental way we use ourselves in our world. And again, the conditions we're talking about are not really objective or subjective. This is a radical suggestion. It implies that mind and world are not two things, and that the ethical is far more pervasive than we might imagine. In order to really fulfill the potential of our character and actually live up to our own ideals, we need to see how we make the world in the simple acts of sitting, standing, walking, talking, and in the basic quality of our mind, our heart, our body, our being. We don't usually see these things because we don't see that how we use ourselves in sitting, standing, walking, talking affects how we use ourselves when we make bigger decisions. And we don't see how all of this emerges from our most basic use of mind, heart, body, and world. We're getting at the essence of love wisdom here, the essence of philosophy and spirituality. Love wisdom invites us to touch the profundity of asking, with what mind will I stand up straight? With what mind will I speak to my children? With what mind will I confront my fears? With what mind will I receive a vision and bring it to life? What is the mind of true success, true abundance, true wisdom, true love, true beauty? And when we ask, what mind? Together with that goes, what heart, what body, what world? That's a rather intense suggestion, isn't it? It implies that truly changing our habits, truly liberating ourselves, somehow means changing and liberating our world. That's neither hard nor easy, but it sure can feel intimidating. One of the problems we face when we try to change habits, when we try to fulfill our potential and try to do things in a more skillful, creative, compassionate, and inspired way, is that every time we engage in a habit, 
even if the habit constitutes bad use of ourselves and our world, we often experience that habit with an inherent rightness to it. And doing something different can at first feel wrong. The way you stand right now feels right. And changing it can feel weird or even wrong. Oliver Sacks wrote about a man who walked with a tremendous tilt in his posture. But to this leaning man, the leaning felt like being straight. It felt proper. So his idea of straightness was out of whack. And it took video footage of himself walking for the man to realize that he was crooked. He had to find a way to retune his sense of straightness in order to stop leaning. Now, we should keep in mind the ethical overtones of that because we say that an ethical person is upright, on the level, and so on. Now, what if our non postural sense of straightness is off? That's the main issue. In other words, how do we begin to sense with clarity our bad use of ourselves and our world? How do we begin to see that what we think is right, what we really sense as right and proper, might actually not be so skillful and realistic, might be not so wise, loving, and beautiful as it could be. The problem is even trickier than we might imagine at this point because once we get the sense that we have practiced a bad habit, which means a bad way of knowing, a bad way of living and loving, once we sense that, we need to also see that doing anything can amount to just another doing, another way of getting things wrong. What do I mean by that? Well, imagine you came to me to learn how to stand up straight. You discovered that you were slouching, and you come to me and you say, I want to learn to stand up straight. And I say to you, there isn't a way to stand up straight. What you need to do is just stop the slumping, stop the slouching, and then everything will be all right. It's not that we need the right way to do things, but that we have to give up doing as a psychological disposition. Similarly, there isn't a right me to be. And life is not about being myself or being yourself, but letting go of all the mistaken notions of what we are that cover over the reality we can never avoid being. The wisdom traditions teach us we cannot do the right way to think, to love, to create, to fulfill our potential no more so than an acorn does anything to become an oak tree. When it's springtime, we see everything burst into bloom, yet there's no conscious effort in the way that we consciously effort. When you were in the womb, you somehow developed a whole body without conscious effort, 
Building yourself in that way was a trickier task than most of what you do on a daily basis. Most of what any of us do on a daily basis. And yet, most of us try to run our lives using a thinking that differs from the thinking we did in the womb. Now, that thinking was original thinking. What kind of thinking do we typically do instead? We're trying to get at this suggestion. We cannot think our way out of bad thinking or knowing any better than we could try to do our way out of any other bad doing. Instead, we have to get in touch with something that bears the same relation to knowing, thinking, and learning that knowing, thinking, and learning themselves bear to all our activities. We can learn how to speak a foreign language. We can learn how to play the piano. We can learn how to get an MBA. We can learn all sorts of things. But what is there already that makes it possible for us to learn all the things that we do and to apply that learning, to engage in activity with skill and poise? We have to get down to that deeper level of our being in order to skillfully change our lives and our world for the better, in order to experience real freedom and actual thinking, living thinking, not thought, habitual thought, applied to situations that will never quite fit it. We have suggested that we cannot productively tell someone to stand up straight and think, that they can really do that in a skillful and realistic way. How much less productive must it be to tell them to know better, or fix the problems of the world, or be a better person, change your life, become who you are, or anything at all than a life coach, executive coach, self-help guru, psychologist, or even a politician or priest might tell them? We can also put that the other way around. How can we think that our politicians or business leaders can fix the problems of the world given all that we have contemplated together? Politicians and business leaders, like the rest of us, can't be expected to fix the problems in our society simply because we tell them about those problems. It's not going to work. We can treat all sorts of symptoms, but the disease itself remains. Somehow we, the people, have to change the conditions that make it possible to have the problems we see in ourselves and in the world. Unless we happen to be perfect, then anything we want to improve, any place in our lives where we could be wiser, more loving, more beautiful, more creative, more insightful, more confident, any place at all where we could improve, we need to look at the objective conditions that make it possible to get what we don't want or to get what we thought we wanted and still feel unhappy and also see a lot of negative side effects from having gotten what we thought we wanted. On a grand scale, we could ask, what 
makes it possible for us to collapse the conditions of life as we know it. We could ask, what makes it possible for us to create misery, to be at war for years and years, to have mass shootings and a massive prison population? What makes it possible for us to have countless really stupid jobs that people hate while millions are poor and out of work? What makes it possible for so many jobs to feel meaningless, for so many workers to have their vast potential wasted, for so many corporate cultures to feel restrictive, false, needlessly aggressive and dramatic? What makes it possible for us to be so self-critical, so self-defeating, so self-hating? What makes it possible for us to cut off our own potential, to feel depressed and constricted and alone, to feel confused, anxious, and afraid, to feel so frightened of failure that we don't even try? What makes it possible for us to have so much political nonsense, so much political hatred, so much political corruption and corporate control? What makes it possible to have so many acres of forest burn up and be cut down? And what makes it possible for so many ecologies to be fouled and so many species to go extinct? Our ego might have all the answers to those questions. But are any of those answers truly holistic in their view? Do any of those answers get at the deeper issue of use and the deeper issue of objective conditions? What if the thing that makes all of those bad things possible is exactly what makes Western culture possible and what makes Western economics and economies possible. Wow. What if that's true? Is it true? If we look at the world and we can recognize any serious level of tragedy and disorder, how can we be sure that the conditions that make that tragedy and disorder possible are not the very conditions that make our culture and maybe even our sense of self possible, maybe even our sense of rightness and happiness possible? We've considered that our sense of how to be happy might be diluted. What we think will make us happy may not actually make us happy. And we keep trying to be happy. We don't seem happier than people in the past. And we have a far more degraded world as a consequence of the ways that we've been trying to make ourselves happy. Now keep in mind, we are not suggesting that Western culture is simply bad or that our sense of self is bad. Rather, we are asking what in the conditions that make our current self and culture possible, 
also make a great deal of needless suffering possible. And furthermore, this is not the same as asking whether we have freedom and thus the freedom to err. Because, of course, to err is human. But to destroy the conditions of life is insane. To err is human, but to err such that you cut off your own highest potential? That's also insane. Moreover, to err is human, but to make the same error again and again, even in different guises, while expecting a different result, that too is insanity. What makes it possible for us to be as insane as we seem to be? All of these questions relate to what we could call the self-help catastrophe. We address that more directly in other contemplations. It's just important to mention here. For now, let's acknowledge that all of this relates to the central question of love wisdom the central question of all philosophy, religion, and spirituality, namely, who am I and how should I live? We can no more tell someone who they are than we can tell them to stand up straight or fix the problems of the world. And we can't think that we can make ourselves or the world better just by trying harder. Like, I could be better, you could be better if you just try hard enough. That's the message we get from so many corners of our culture. People tell us to stand up straight, to be ourselves, to sell ourselves, to brand ourselves, to dream big, to seize the day, to seize the power of now, to max out our life, to think and grow rich to lean in, to stop apologizing, to become a super attractor, and all the rest. And they either tell us to do these things implicitly, or they may tell us not to do them while nevertheless leaving us to revert to our doing mindset. To make this sort of crucial mistake is natural, but it is, after all, a mistake one that every major religious and philosophical tradition warns us about vigorously in one way or another. How can we begin to take those warnings seriously and do a better job of realizing our potential? How can we do a better job of using our heart, mind, body, and world? When we realize that we are slumping in our lives, that our entire culture is slouching its way to perdition. We can certainly try and do something different. We can try to stand up straight, and we might in fact look straight. But if the problem is doing itself, if the problem is that we were doing the slouching and now we are doing the straightness, then we have not truly helped ourselves. And instead of slouching our way to perdition, we will march like soldiers. 
we'll probably get there faster. There's a lot more to contemplate when it comes to habit and how to escape the habits of the pattern of insanity that we seem to be caught in. The habits that make us feel so badly about ourselves. The habits that degrade the world and keep us in bondage. The habits that suck the meaning out of our lives like a spiritual vampire sucking out the blood of our souls. Now we'll come back to this subject in future contemplations so that we can learn more and take some steps toward liberation. Before we come to a close, let's circle back to our allegory of the artifact and ask a potentially transformative question. What is that artifact for? What is its function? We considered a range of things it might accomplish, that it might end poverty and war, end stupid jobs, help us find joy and meaning, and revolutionize science and culture. But what is its function? If we don't know that, it might be pretty hard to use it properly, right? This is just like asking what your function is, what my function is, what each person's function is. The wisdom traditions seek to help us receive and actualize our function. In a general sense, we could say that the function of that magical artifact is wisdom love, and beauty. Another way to put it is that the function of the artifact is creative liberation, which means always freeing things up and keeping them going in a vitalizing way, a healthy, healing, holistic, and even a holy way. But these are abstract generalizations. The function of the artifact, the function of our soul, the function of our heart, mind, body, world, cosmos, is received intimately each moment. Each moment contains the very conditions each of us needs to receive our function and bring it to fruition. That means each and every moment is the very condition for liberation, for creatively presencing the magic and mystery of life, the sacredness and wonder of life. Each moment is our function, and all we have to do is allow it to come to fruition. Which means our use of ourselves and our world is intimately interwoven with a primordial awareness, a joyful acceptance, an inconceivable connectedness, and an energetic non-doing that accomplishes the whole of our lives.
What do you think? What are the conditions that make your own errors possible? What are the conditions that make the errors of our culture possible? Are these related? If so, how? How do we open up to our highest potential if we can't just command ourselves to do better, at least not without negative side effects? Again, we can force ourselves to stand up straight, but that doesn't mean that we're not just doing another doing. How could we somehow gain an insight into our true nature and the most proper and skillful use of our mind, heart, body, and world. Today and over the next few days, see if you can notice the way your habits operate, and maybe how some of those habits are culturally conditioned habits, habits that you don't carry around inside of yourself, but habits that you walk around inside of. You might, for instance, pause just after you get a negative result of any kind. Maybe your life partner or business partner got angry with you, but you think that you were just going along in the right way. See if you can discover some of the conditions of your heart, mind, body, and even your culture that made the disagreement possible. See if you can begin to notice some place in your life where you think for certain you're standing up straight, but where you might just notice a little more slouching than you care to admit. If you have reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.